for those that I haven't met yet, uh, my name's Brian, and I'm the Director of Addiction Medicine for the LA County Department of Health Services. I also work at uh, UCLA as a volunteer assistant clinical professor of addiction medicine in the Department of Family Medicine. And this is a talk about treating alcohol use disorder and opioid use disorder with medications in community mental health settings. I don't get paid by anyone who is gonna to try to sell you anything. So I don't have any conflicts of interest to disclose at this point. And let's start with a case. The case of Mr. Brown. Mr. Brown is 34 years old. He has a history of schizophrenia managed with paliperidone long-acting injection, 234 milligrams every four weeks. He drinks up to a fifth of vodka most days of the week, and he denies significant alcohol withdrawal on the days that he doesn't drink. He smokes two packs of tobacco cigarettes each day, smoking tobacco cigarettes. Which of the following medications treats the health condition associated with the largest risk of morbidity and mortality in this patient? Uh, to me privately, if you don't want your answers seen publicly, or you can chat the group, but um, uh, I'm not gonna plan to use a, a formal poll here, but I'm just curious if you want to chat to me, what do you think? Is it A, nicotine replacement therapy, B, buprenorphine, C, acamprosate, D, naltrexone, or E, disulfiram, that is the um, treatment that we think would be most helpful to him. And then by the end of the presentation, hopefully come up with an answer. So uh, uh, I'm hoping to, uh, we have a fair number of slides, but I'm hoping to go through them relatively efficiently to leave some time for question and answer. Co-occurring disorders are common. Um, about half of people with a substance use disorder have a co-occurring mental illness that's not related to their substance use disorder. Most people with substance use disorders have symptoms, right? Have trouble sleeping, uh, have uh, states, have activated states. Um, psychotic symptoms are not uncommon among people with uh, stimulant use disorders. Um, symptoms are common. About half of people with substance use disorders have something called a co-occurring disorder, that is independently of their substance use, even if they weren't using at all, they would experience mental health symptoms associated with a non-substance, what's called co-occurring disorder. And um, of the 2 million adults with opioid use disorder, um, we know that about 30% have co-occurring depression, 22% with anxiety, and 27% with bipolar disorder. And of the 25 million people with an alcohol use disorder, about 33% have a co-occurring mental illness. We do know that among people with bipolar and psychotic disorder, co-occurring substance use is common in roughly half of people that have a bipolar or psychotic disorder. And people served in public mental health settings. So I work in the LA County jails where I see patients. Um, but I also see patients at a community mental health center in South Los Angeles. Um, the rates of co-occurring substance use are much higher um, in uh, patients with co-occurring disorders served by public settings. In terms of, um, uh, this is a chart, this is an older chart, but it comes from SAMHSA, looking at, um, of the substances used, what percentage of people had a serious mental illness? And methamphetamine and cocaine in particular have a high co-occurrence. Um, uh, roughly a third of people who use methamphetamine and cocaine have a serious mental illness, and then as you um, get to uh, um, perform other substances like um, cannabis, uh, cigarettes, um, and alcohol, uh, the rate of serious mental illness goes down. Um, and we also know that um, 
uh, in terms of uh, of the people with serious mental illness in the United States, um, roughly two thirds, uh, probably a little less than two thirds, do not have um, a co-occurring substance use disorder, um, but uh, a significant plurality do. And so even though there's this uh, significant burden among people with mental health conditions, there's still a large gap in treatment. Um, 90 plus percent of people with a co-occurring disorder do not get treatment for both their mental health and substance use disorder. Um, Treatment for mental health disorders is more heavily funded than treatment for substance use disorders. So many people with a co-occurring disorder end up in mental health treatment uh, and their substance use disorder goes untreated. And I need to give credit to uh, um, doctors Ober and Bromley who generated this slide as part of a presentation that we collectively gave together uh, uh, end of last year. So lack of treatment for people with co-occurring disorders is due to several factors. Um, there tend to be long waiting lists for people getting um, substance use disorder care. Um, and in substance use disorder care, uh, most substance use disorder programs are not uh, resourced to provide medications. So medications are not always available in substance use disorder care. There's oftentimes a big stigma associated with substance use. Historically, um, patients have been turned away from mental health treatment if they use substances. And they knew this, so they would just not disclose substance use so that they wouldn't be uh, refused mental health services. And stigma remains. The stain of uh, refusing care for people who use substances remains in the mental health system. The service coordination challenges, particularly if you're trying to do a parallel treatment where you have a patient in a mental health program um, that you're trying to get them into substance use disorder treatment, that, that care coordination can be challenged. With substance, uh, with, uh, in substance use disorder treatment to work with people with serious mental illness, tend to be pretty variable. In, here in LA County, if you look at the treatment cascade for um, clients with alcohol use disorder, you see a pretty high rates of, this is uh, data gotten from, uh, acquired from eight clinics. Um, there's pretty high rates of screening um, for patients uh, for unhealthy alcohol use uh, and very low rates of treatment of um, uh, patients that have alcohol use disorder with medications for alcohol use disorder. And, you know, uh, co-occurring disorder treatment, particularly medications for alcohol and opioid use disorder and mental health uh, centers can address this unmet need. So uh, this was, again, the, the group I work with at RAND. The aim was to fully treat co-occurring disorders in public health mental settings as a way of addressing this treatment gap that many people with co-occurring disorders don't get treatment for both. So within this context, I figured I'd um, talk about, well, what are, what are medications for alcohol and opioid use disorders? And um, to take a step back, you know, with co-occurring disorders in general, I pulled up a list of everything I could find that could get you high. Like I was like, what, you know, what's the full list of all intoxicants? And um, this is a, 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 a list of intoxicants I pulled off of a website called Arrowhead, which is simultaneously everything that is good and bad about the internet. Arrowhead is a website that is outsourcing for substance, like for substances that'll get you high. So it's not peer reviewed. It is purely, you know, anyone on the internet can post anything. And all of these substances have in common uh, the fact that they work on the brain. And that list is unwieldy. So in medicine, we tend to um, 
uh, narrow it down to categories. Now, keep in mind, these categories are not infinite, that um, most substances can be fit into one of these categories, but these, cap the, these uh, categories are not, um, uh, uh, what's the right term, uh, do not encompass every possible intoxicant. But we tend to think this is the major one. The major intoxicants are tobacco, cannabis, sedatives like benzos or barbiturates, opioids, stimulants, hallucinogens, and alcohol. The, all of these substances, um, or particularly uh, the, the non-hallucinogens, all seem to activate dopamine in the nucleus accumbens. And that's what uh, we think is the final common pathway in, uh, in uh, brain-based addictive behavior. That is, um, that all intoxicants seem to shape the way that dopamine works. And we know that our brain um, uh, tracks saliency of events by using, like dopamine neurotransmission trick, uh, uh, triggers us um, to pay attention to the salience of, uh, saliency of events. So that when um, somebody with a cocaine use disorder or methamphetamine use disorder or alcohol use disorder or heroin use disorder is exposed to the context, that is the people and places and things where they had previously used, that saliency monitor says you have to go use, that, that, that the use of that substance is as or even more important than your safety, your security, your family, your housing, your job, um, other, um, other elements of survival. And this is where set and setting comes in, is that we sort of think of drugs as addictive, but not all drugs are equally addictive. This is from uh, a NISARC um, that looked at the lifetime risk of addiction following exposure to one of these substances. And uh, the risk use disorder after exposure to cannabis is about 9%, which means two things. One, most people that use cannabis do not have an addiction to cannabis. But two, the cannabis is also not, not addictive. It is an addictive drug. You, you can become addicted to it, most people, but it is, it is addictive. 21% of the people that use cocaine develop a cocaine addiction. And uh, for alcohol and tobacco, for alcohol, it's around 23%. And for tobacco, two thirds of people who use tobacco products develop an addiction to, to tobacco. What you'll notice about alcohol and tobacco is they're both uh, uh, legal and legally promoted substances. Um, it, uh, at the time this study was published, uh, cannabis was available through um, medicinal sources. You know, you were legally allowed to sell it and, and, and use it for uh, sort of purported medicinal purposes. Um, uh, but it was not widely available for legal consumption. And cocaine remains a schedule one drug. And so I'd highlight that the addictivity of substances certainly does depend on dopamine, but also depends upon the context in which these drugs are deployed. That is, that um, uh, the more legal and promoted a drug is, the more addictive it is, even if um, uh, the drug itself, like with sort of cocaine, direct effects on our dopamine neurotransmitters, right? but is less addictive than alcohol, I think, because alcohol is so aggressively promoted, right? And that if, if cocaine was as aggressively promoted, we'd see tremendous rates of cocaine addiction. So the set and the setting and the social context in which drugs are used has a huge impact on the addictivity of those substances. So I have a hypothesis. At the time um, that they looked at this NISARC data set, Canna there wasn't a legal cannabis industry nearly to the extent that there is now. 
not necessarily because of factors related to um, uh, uh, changes in the, the THC concentration, although that is a factor as well, but um, because we're going to see a lot more people using and the social context and the acceptability of using cannabis is going to shift. Um, Scott asked about caffeine. Um, caffeine was measured on the NISARC data set. Um, physical dependence to caffeine is pretty common. A lot of people don't function well without coffee. Um, but what's interesting is uh, that physical dependence on caffeine tends to not be associated with the DSM-5 substance use disorder criteria of functional impact around caffeine. So for many people, they develop tolerance to caffeine. And I suppose there's the annoyance of if you don't have your cup of coffee, then you don't function well. Um, but other than that, most people uh, don't develop caffeine use disorder despite its widespread exposure. So we think that actually caffeine biochemically is not as dangerous or damaging as um, other substances that are more typically associated with um, DSM-5 substance use disorder criteria. And you'll notice the one thing that Nistark didn't cover was opioids. So uh, there, we in the United States have had this natural experiment of the opioid epidemic, which basically answered the question, let's say you were to prescribe a bunch of people prescription opioids, what would you find? And what we found is that the chance of becoming addicted after the onset of chronic opioid use is between 3 and 26%, depending on the patient population. So I listed um, some of the literature here that goes through the addictivity of opioids. Some of you may be familiar with uh, a letter um, to the New England Journal that talked about um, the risk of opioid addiction is less than 1%. And that letter um, came from a review of uh, a large administrative data set um, that was hospital-based that looked at both, as I recall, inpatient and outpatient prescriptions and found that the rate of developing an opioid use disorder uh, was pretty rare among people who were exposed to opioids typically like in a hospital setting, but also in an outpatient setting. What was different about the opioid epidemic wasn't simply that people were exposed to opioids. It was exposed to opioids long-term. Sort of illustrate this. There's a difference between getting a shot of hydromorphone when you're in acute pain in the ER and being given a 90-day supply of oxycodone with four results, right? Those are, those are, those are different. Even though there are they're opioid molecules involved, those are very different contexts of, of uh, being provided uh, opioid treatment. And so it wasn't simply the deployment of opioids, it was that there were a lot of opioids provided to people long-term that seemed to be associated with an increased rate of opioid-related problems. So the addiction cycle um, typically involves an intoxicated state, which are all states, and anticipated states. So people sort of get high and then they, you know, go into withdrawal and then they anticipate getting high again. So, so they go through this sort of up and down, up and down. And uh, if you've ever been into, let's say, a 12-step meeting, you'll hear the phrase, I got sick and tired of being sick and tired. And literally it was, you know, I was on this cycle. The binges, the intoxication states felt less and less euphoric over time. The withdrawal and negative affect states felt worse and worse over time. And eventually I was just using, not because I felt better, but I used because it, you know, it helped me from feeling worse. And so I just got sick and tired of that. Um, and that gets us to the definition of addiction, right? This sort of flywheel, the cycle of, 
kind of unremitting uh, intoxication and withdrawal, is addiction is a treatable chronic medical uh, uh, condition that involves complex interactions of the brain, the environment, and the individual life experience. People with addiction use substances and engage in behaviors that become compulsive and continue despite negative consequences, but prevention and treatment can be effective. If you look, again, this is in the United States, at um, what's the rate of use of various substances. Alcohol is the most widely used substance, uh, intoxicating substance in the United States. I'm gonna say caffeine aside, because um, I don't, uh, uh, NISDA doesn't track the caffeine number, so I don't have an apples to apples comparison. But for uh, alcohol, it's a little less than half of the population has had a drink in the past month, and about 70% of the population has had a drink in the past year. Then tobacco's next, then cannabis, and then you get prescription pain relievers, uh, narcotics, uh, prescription narcotics, uh, cocaine, prescription sedatives, prescription stimulants, then hallucinogens, methamphetamine, inhalants, and heroin. And this is just to be clear, all non-prescribed, right? This is not just who's on prescription medications. Uh, um, this is who used a prescription medication for a non-medical reason. And I mentioned the opioid epidemic. This is kind of the slide that sort of best illustrates the concordance between opioid sales, opioid-related death, and opioid-related treatment. Um, if you, uh, yeah, this has now been widely described. If you look at overall prescription volume of uh, prescription opioids in, uh, in the United States, you'll see that the volume peaked in 2011. And after 2011, due to the efforts of regulators and the CDC and a, a number of bodies, we've now seen a real drop in um, just overall volume of opioid prescribing in the United States. But interestingly, Opioid overdoses have continued to climb in the past year or so. They may, we, we think they may have leveled off, but nonetheless, well after 2011, we've continued to see a climb in um, opioid-involved overdose deaths. So a question for the group, why? Like why would opioid-related deaths climb if prescription opioid volume has contracted? Any ideas? Yeah, the question is, if, um, uh, I'm gonna go back a slide. If prescription narcotic volume in the United States, if the overall uh, you know, uh, analgesic dispense volume in terms of morphine equivalence has dropped since 2011, how come opioid overdose deaths continue to climb? And so uh, we've gotten uh, uh, feedback from a number of you, thank you. So Daisy said, well, people started using um, opioids on the street. Jean says fentanyl. Is, uh, Isabel says less availability, means higher dose when it's used. Um, uh, Brooks says population of drugs has been initiated with increased prescriptions. Uh, um, Marlisa says street drugs. David says fentanyl. So the answer is um, that people transitioned off of their prescription opioids and on to illicit opioids. So when we saw, if you look, and this is a graph that looks at the waves of the opioid epidemic in the United States, it started with um, increased availability of prescription narcotic opioids. Actually, in 2011, we did now see a dip in prescription-related uh, opioid overdoses, but um, it was more than made up for by heroin-related opioid overdoses. So the hypothesis is that people, when they got cut off of their prescription opioids, started using heroin. And then fentanyl really saturated the market, we think, in around 2013. So um, since then, we've seen a tremendous rise in fentanyl-related overdose. Now, what makes fentanyl different than most opioids is its potency. Very small amounts of fentanyl have a big opioid effect. 
So uh, as a result, very small amounts of fentanyl are the difference between your being very high and overdose. So we think a lot of opioid overdose now is being driven by synthetic opioids, particularly fentanyl, um, which is now uh, been mixed into many opioids that are sold on the street are now uh, involved fentanyl because fentanyl is synthetic, relatively, che uh, relatively cheap to make and sell. Here in LA County, um, we have not seen the same rise in prescription opioids the way that um, other parts of the country have seen. We certainly do have people who die of prescription overdoses, um, and that's the, the sort of dark brown line at the top, um, but not that far uh, um, uh, uh, underneath. Uh, so the, the middle line is um, prescription opiate-involved overdoses. The red line is heroin overdoses. And you'll notice the difference between heroin and prescription overdoses has been relatively modest. Um, we have over the past, uh, between 2015, 16, and 17, seen an overall rise in um, opiate-involved overdoses. And we think that that's likely attributed to fentanyl mixed in with narcotics or, um, uh, or, or uh, uh, street-available um, prescription drugs. And many of these remain centered in the Skid Row area of downtown. It's this dark red dot um, in kind of the lower center of, of, of the screen. Um, what we have seen an un unrefutable rise of in LA is methamphetamine. Um, Meth-related overdose have climbed tremendously between 2008 and 2017. Um, the healthcare utilization for methamphetamine has grown tremendously. Um, but I do, you know, although this is a talk about alcohol and uh, opiate pharmacotherapy, uh, many of the psychiatrists that I talk to, many of my DMH colleagues that I talk to, many of the emergency physicians I talk to say, you know, why are you spending all this time talking about opioids and alcohol? We should be talking about meth. And the reason is we've got treatments for opioids and alcohol. We don't have any solidly validated medication treatment that helps with um, uh, methamphetamine or other stimulant use disorders at this point. Um, always sort of promising uh, applications of off-label uh, existing medications, but nothing that's been sort of well-validated and certainly nothing that seems to be as effective as the medications we have for opioid use disorder uh, for um, uh, stimulant use disorder. Okay, um, tobacco, uh, although is used less than alcohol, is the number one biggest killer in the world. Um, uh, number one biggest driver of preventable death is tobacco. The overall prevalence in LA County is 17%, but in mental health populations, it's closer to about 30, 35%. Um, and it still accounts for over 20% of all annual deaths. So more people die of tobacco-related illness than HIV, alcohol or illegal drug use, motor vehicle injuries, suicides, and murders combined. Most people who smoke cigarettes do not like the fact that they smoke cigarettes. Um, now, it takes a fair amount of work because of the addictivity of tobacco to go from smoking to non-smoking. So I don't wanna sort of say because people want to stop smoking that everyone will just be able to do it. It oftentimes takes support. Um, and if you think about what it takes for a smoker to be a non-smoker, um, uh, uh, you know, people wake up. The, the pharmacology of nicotine is that um, uh, uh, people wake up in nicotine withdrawal. And what's the first thing you do when you wake up? You have a cigarette. And then what do you do next? Well, there's a question about caffeine. Um, you have a cup of coffee, right? And what goes with coffee is cigarettes. You go to work and you have a cigarette and you go on a break, you have a cigarette, something good happens, you have a cigarette, something bad happens, you have a cigarette. You end, cigarettes end up being sort of paired with many different life activities. So to be a non-smoker, you have to learn how to wake up and not smoke and learn how to drink coffee and not smoke and go on a break and not smoke and have good things that happen and not smoke and have bad things that happen and not smoke. You have to sort of 
relearn all of these elements of your life that can be a real challenge. And so that's why it takes many trials or, or, or attempts before people are able to sustain tobacco abstinence. As you might learn how to wake up and not smoke, but you haven't learned how to like tolerate stress without smoking yet, right? Like, uh, you know, there's different strategies that work for different um, life events and, uh, that tend to trigger people to, to return to using. So we know that people um, who are more stress reactive uh, have a harder time smoking and people in mental health treatment smoke a lot more than people without. Um, people in addiction treatment seem to uh, smoke the highest rates out of any um, uh, patient populations of that are surveyed. And so if, that's, if this is the epidemiology, uh, what do we do to support smokers? What do we do to support people with alcohol and opioid use disorder? What do we do to support people with um, methamphetamine use disorder? Stephanie says, what about naltrexone uh, to help with methamphetamine use disorder? Um, yes, there is one study that showed that uh, uh, people that received naltrexone um, separated slightly from placebo with methamphetamine use disorders compared to not. Um, then naltrexone has been, uh, um, what's the right term? Um, famously ineffective in replicating, you know, in, in, in terms of that effect being replicated, it's possible for people whose meth use is generated or tied to their alcohol or opioid use that naltrexone could be effective. Um, I don't use naltrexone as a primary treatment for methamphetamine use disorder. The, the, um, even the effect size in the trial is relatively modest. Um, uh, but if you're, you know, maybe after this talk, I'm happy to share uh, some of the material that I've garnered together looking at some of the medication trials for uh, cocaine and, and methamphetamine use disorder. Uh, naltrexone is included as like a possible agent, um, but I'll tell you clinically as an addiction psychiatrist, I've not had a tremendous amount of success using naltrexone for the indication of methamphetamine use disorder, but I have had a fair amount of success using naltrexone for alcohol use disorder and for a subgroup of patients with opioid use disorder. Um, uh, and if their meth use is tied to those disorders, that uh, drinking less and using opioids less can be helpful. So um, uh, integrating addiction treatment, we think is the gold standard. Rather than, you know, if most people with addiction don't get treatment, rather than waiting for patients who oftentimes have limited readiness of actually going to like a specialty addiction treatment program, um, that, that integrating substance use services into mental health and general medical settings results in better outcomes. Um, so one of the things I, I used to work at the Department of Mental Health, and one of the things that I worked on when I worked for the LA County Department of Mental Health was on um, an alcohol initiative. And so there's uh, a guide that's being revised right now. I think uh, you can no longer actually get this online. It's been taken off by the NIAAA, but it's this helping patients who drinks, uh, drinks too much. Um, and you actually start by um, asking people how many times in the past year did you have five more drinks on one occasion? If it's a man, and if it's a woman under the, uh, if it's a woman, then you say four or more drinks on one occasion. But when you ask how many times did you have uh, X number of drinks on one occasion, what counts as a standard drink? Um, so it depends on the, the alcohol by volume of, uh, of what you're drinking. So um, beer, which is typically a 5% strength, 5% of, of uh, beer by volume is, is made of alcohol. Um, uh, 12 ounces of 5% beer counts as a standard drink. If you're drinking um, uh, malt liquor, which is typically a 7% alcohol by volume uh, beverage, uh, eight to nine ounces is a standard drink, which means that if you have one 40 ounce can of a malt liquor beverage, you haven't had one drink. You've had a little over four drinks. That means if you've had two cans, you've had eight. So if you uh, ask somebody how many, you know, uh, how many times in the last year did you have five more drinks on one occasion? Like, no, I only have two drinks. 
it's actually helpful to know what what you're drinking. Um, because if it's a 40 ounce can, that's actually not in the standard drink. Ounces of the 5% uh, uh, beer, 89 ounces of 7% uh, malt liquor, five ounces of table wine, um, three to four ounces of fortified wine, like sherry or port, and then an ounce and a half of um, a 40 proof spirit, um, which, uh, sorry, an 80 proof spirit, which is 40% alcohol, I should clarify, an uh, 80 proof spirit, which is 40% alcohol, an ounce and a half, which works out to be 0.6 fluid ounces of pure grain ethanol, or 14 grams if you were to actually just distill out the alcohol from any of these beverages. The point is, it actually has entirely to do with the amount of alcohol in the beverage and nothing to do with the beverage itself. Um, uh, beer, wine, liquor, all makes people equivalently intoxicated. The um, speed of delivery can change depending on what kind of alcohol you're, you're imbibing, um, but uh, what counts as a standard drink and the risk uh, correlates entirely with the number of grams of alcohol, not what type, like uh, the, the, the specific beverage that alcohol is dissolved in. So screening question is how many times last year for men did you have five more drinks on one occasion or for women four more drinks? And then um, you can also ask how many times last year did you use a tobacco product, a prescription drug for a non-medical reason, or an illicit drug? And in California, um, our NIDA cook screen should also include our cannabis products because um, I don't think many people now think of cannabis products as counting as illicit, even though the NIDA quick screen is a federal tool and um, cannabis remains federally schedule one. If somebody answers anything other than none for any of these, then further screening is indicated. The audit C is the recommended uh, three item screening questionnaire for alcohol. It develops a score on which you can then determine does somebody need to be assessed for an alcohol use disorder. And then the assist is the tool for drug screening. Some of you may be familiar with other tools like the TAPS um, or yeah, anyway, uh, the SBAT, the um, S2BI. There's a bunch of other tools you can find on the NIDA website. The assist is the most extensive. It comes up with a substance involvement score that you can use to then do a diagnostic assessment. Does somebody meet uh, criteria for a substance use disorder? Um, the, the screening tools don't tell you who meets this criteria or who doesn't, but it tells you who is involved with substances enough to warrant a diagnostic assessment. And this is what the diagnosis, the clinical definition of a substance use disorder is. It's, you know, failure of overall obligations, use in hazardous situations, continued use despite harm, tolerance withdrawal, taking a substance over longer time um, or larger amounts than intended, unsuccessful efforts to cut down, a great deal of time spent using, giving up activities related to use, use despite recurrent problems and craving. Um, so when somebody meets criteria, when they uh, have a, any substance use disorder, what are the treatment options? Well, the treatment options are meds plus counseling plus support. And this is not specific to addiction. Actually, um, meds and counseling support are the treatment for depression, PTSD. Meds plus counseling support are, are the treatments for actually many behavioral, health, uh, behavioral medicine conditions. So diabetes, for example, responds to meds, diets, and diet and exercise, right? Like many areas of medicine respond to this triangle, meds plus counseling plus support. I'm going to spend a fair amount of my time talking about medications, but I just want to highlight that medications are only one arm of the triangle. And the, um, this is an area of some uh, discord in specialty addiction treatment, because there's a term that you'll see used a lot, medication-assisted treatment, that implies that medications aren't a treatment. Counseling and support are the treatment, and medications assist that treatment. And that's actually not quite accurate. Medications are an arm. They, they are an independently efficacious arm of treatment. Um, 
that sometimes can be added to support. But like, for example, for depression, there are some people that take medications for depression that do not go to counseling, right? Um, and that's, that's, if that's what works for the patient, that's, there's no less valid, uh, th that remission from a uh, major depressive, uh, say a major depressive episode is no less valid. It was generated by medication compared to counseling support. So let me be clear, I my patients to have everything on this menu, meds, counseling, all are important. Uh, but I don't withhold medications just because the patient isn't doing counseling support. You can treat people with medications plus counseling plus support. And um, for some substance use we really don't have medications. There are no FDA-approved medications for stimulant disorders, cannabis use disorders, sedative use disorders, hallucinogen use disorders. We just don't have the medication tools. But we do have medications for and, uh, uh, opioids, tobacco, and alcohol. Those are the three uh, substance use disorders for which we have medications for addiction treatment available. And I'm calling it medications for addiction treatment. I'm not calling it medication-assisted treatment because medications themselves are effective even if a patient does not choose to participate in counseling or support. And for most people, when we talk about medications for addiction treatment, either are thinking just about medications for opioid use disorder, right? The tobacco use meds, although they are medications for addiction treatment, rarely get called MAT. So are you, you know, colloquially, you'll hear people talking about MAT. Usually they're, they're talking about the meds for opioid use disorder. Um, uh, uh, for um, alcohol use disorder, there's also medications available. And um, I'll go back a slide, just to be clear. Uh, uh, we have eight molecules, methadone, buprenorphine, naltrexone, disulfiram, acamprosate, nicotine, bupropion. Naloxone is not a medication for addiction treatment. It is a rescation. If uh, somebody uses them in an overdose, um, Narcan can do anything to these state. It's sort of like if somebody has an allergy disorder, you can use an EpiPen to rescue them if they have an allergic reaction, but it doesn't change the underlying um, support. And then as a psychiatrist, I also medicate any psychiatric symptoms that come up. So if somebody can't sleep, I help. Um, if, they're, if I think it's appropriate to pharmacologically help support sleep, if they're having a psychotic reaction, I can use an antipsychotic in order to symptoms. So you can use medications um, that don't necessarily treat the stimulant use disorder in order to help mitigate some symptoms. Um, but counseling support is the mainstay of uh, stimulant use disorder treatment. The trade names that you're probably familiar with are methadone, suboxone, or subutex, or sublocade, or salve, uh, or balbuca, um, or bunivale are all um, uh, brand names that you hear for suboxone products. Vivitrol is the injectable version of naltrexone. Revia is uh, the brand name for the oral version of the most stupid. And Narcan is the trade name for uh, naloxone. And Camprol is the trade name for Camprosate. So I do want to take a moment to talk about how um, the, um, we'll talk about the medications for opioid use disorder first, and then we'll talk about the medications for alcohol use disorder. The way that medications for opioid use disorder work is they break that cycle of intoxication and withdrawal. I mentioned that you get high, then you go into withdrawal, then you get high, then you go into withdrawal again. The medications for opioid use disorder um, help people break out of that cycle of intoxication and withdrawal. The way methadone works is um, the patients get methadone from a federally licensed opioid treatment program. And 
their observed swallowing or taking the dose. And the opiate treatment program increases their dose until they're so tolerant to opioids that they don't uh, continue to use heroin or prescription opioids, whatever they were using, um, because they're so tolerant and methadone is so long acting, they're no longer in withdrawal. So methadone works by essentially occupying the receptors and making people so tolerant that they stop using. Buprenorphine works differently than methadone. Buprenorphine is an opioid, but unlike methadone, buprenorphine does not cause respiratory arrest if you take too much of it. It's very difficult to overdose on buprenorphine on its own. And it doesn't fully activate the opioid system in the brain. You get a partial opioid effect, but not a full opiate effect. This is why it's safe in overdose, is because you can't, you, no matter how much buprenorphine you take, you can't fully activate your opioid receptors. But buprenorphine also binds to and blocks the opiate receptor from other things binding to it. So uh, if you use another opioid on top of buprenorphine, the buprenorphine will blunt the response to the heroin or fentanyl or whatever else somebody's using. Methadone needs to be dispensed or administered to patients out of a federally licensed opiate treatment program, but buprenorphine does not. It can be prescribed to patients to take at their homes, uh, out of community pharmacies. The only rule is that the person who does the prescribing has to have a waiver from DEA that authorizes them to prescribe buprenorphine. Um, most people in mental health treatment do not have this waiver, but those that do are able to use this medication to treat opioid use disorder without needing to refer patients to treatment program. They can do it in a mental health program. And then naltrexone works differently. Naltrexone is an opioid blocker. Um, uh, only a subset of patients can stop using opiates for long enough to benefit from naltrexone. But uh, naltrexone seems to work in the injectable form for opioid use disorder for those patients that have been able to stop using opioids for at least a week. Methadone or buprenorphine, on the other hand, can be started pretty much right away. Um, you can prescribe somebody to take buprenorphine that they take at the next moment that they're in a little bit of withdrawal, they take buprenorphine and it will relieve their withdrawal. With naltrexone, they have to be fully detoxed off of opioids and out of withdrawal before they can get the injection. So of these medications and their utility in mental health settings, buprenorphine can be very quickly implemented as long as the provider has an X waiver. And what's the evidence that these treatments help? Well, for methadone, um, uh, we know that People who are in methadone treatment use heroin much less. Fewer, uh, 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 fewer patients use um, overall. And um, uh, that, uh, so fewer patients use overall and the patients that do use, use less. And in those patients with co-occurring heroin and cocaine use, we find that um, cocaine use goes down when heroin use goes down. 
This doesn't mean methadone treats cocaine use disorder, but it does reduce drug use behavior in people who have heroin use disorder. Now, I mentioned this before, but buprenorphine uh, goes under the tongue, and it's a medication that be, can be prescribed by a wavered provider who's authorized to prescribe it. You just have to tell the patients before they start taking buprenorphine that they have to wait. I mentioned that you know people get high and then they get sick and then they get high and they get sick. They have to wait until they're a little bit sick before they start taking buprenorphine. Because buprenorphine will block opio uh, heroin from working in their system. And if they take it while they're high, they might actually experience some precipitated withdrawal. So you just have the patient wait until they're in a little bit of withdrawal already, then they take buprenorphine and they feel better. The data 2000 waiver uh, sounds um, uh, complicated, but I've trained now about a thousand people um, in, in the waiver training. Um, and it's actually not particularly technically complicated. Buprenorphine is a way safer medication to use than things like lithium or Depakote, which can be routinely toxic to patients if, if uh, they go outside of the therapeutic window. Um, and if anyone is interested, um, I'm running uh, virtual trainings uh, uh, all the time. Here's an email address that any uh, physician, physician assistant or nurse practitioner can use to sign up for the training. And if you're not a prescribing clinician, but you also want to go to a, a buprenorphine waiver training, you are more than welcome to attend. Just email the la.california.bridge at gmail.com email address to sign up for a, a waiver training. For those of you that prescribe medications for um, uh, substance use disorders, um, this is how you prescribe buprenorphine, is you have somebody start with the eight milligram slash two milligram dose. They can take either a half or a whole stripper tablet um, every one hour until their um, uh, withdrawal or cravings are gone. And we don't recommend patients go over 24 milligrams a day. I mean, some patients need more than that, but it's pretty rare. And here's an example of a handout just instructing a patient to wait until they're in a little bit of withdrawal. And then when they're in a little bit of withdrawal, they start taking, they put uh, buprenorphine slash naloxone under their tongue. And uh, within about an hour, they should feel better. And here's the rest of that handout. And if you're not somebody that prescribes, but you want to get a patient in front of a waiver provider, um, here in LA County, we have a um, uh, phone number that we're using to uh, uh, help provide consultation to patients. And you can also go to choosemat.org. Choosemat.org is a statewide website where you can look for local buprenorphine waiver providers. There are seven now formulations of buprenorphine that have been approved by the FDA for opioid use disorder. It's the Suboxone film, the Suboxone tablets, the Subsolve tablets, the Bunavale film. We now have a sublingual buprenorphine tablet that doesn't have naloxone in it. The naloxone actually doesn't have any effect on the way buprenorphine works, but it is a safety mechanism uh, to help uh, make these medications more aversive if they're injected or snorted. Um, so they help support patients taking these medications as prescribed. But we now have an injectable buprenorphine uh, that lasts a month. So there's a buprenorphine long-acting injection, as well as a buprenorphine implant that lasts six months. And why would we prescribe buprenorphine to patients with opioid use disorder? The biggest reason is because it keeps them alive. Um, buprenorphine has a tremendous effect on more, uh, mortality in the negative direction, right? So, or negative, in the, in, the, in the less mortality, I mean, I should say positive direction, right? Less mortality direction. So compared to the general population, Opioid use disorder has over six times the all-cause mortality, um, the uh, um, 
uh, mortality rate um, for o untreated opioid use disorder is higher than the mortality rate of a, um, a non-ST elevation myocardial infarction, right? Like a troponin leak is less deadly than untreated opioid use disorder. Um, being on buprenorphine, even if somebody's not enrolled in a treatment program, uh, uh, buprenorphine reduces that by over fourfold. So one big reason to offer patients with opioid use disorder buprenorphine as quickly as feasible is that it will help protect them against overdose. And I can't tell you how many times I'll be doing like a session with a patient. Um, I work at West Central Mental Health and um, the patient will be like, oh yeah, I, you know, I drink or I, I, I use opioids. A subset of patients is, are open to these treatments, um, but I never want to miss an opportunity to initiate uh, medication for opioid use disorder because these are medications that keep our patients alive. Um, Larissa says, what's the duration to administer Vivitrol? Um, now, Trexone long-acting injection is a once-a-month injection, uh, equivalent to buprenorphine long-acting injection. It's administered once a month. The other thing that buprenorphine does is it helps people stay engaged in treatment. Um, one of the biggest threats to treatment success is that patients leave treatment before it's effective. And um, uh, the blue line shows, and this is in an outpatient primary care practice, that the medications for opioid use disorder keep patients engaged in treatment over the course of 12 months at about 50%. So there's a roughly 50% treatment retention rate at 12 months. And the people who are retained in treatment are more likely to stop using. Um, uh, um, uh, just to be clear, uh, um, the, not everyone that takes buprenorphine stops using opioids. Um, their overdose rate goes down. Many people are no longer in withdrawal, but that doesn't mean that they've totally stopped using heroin or fentanyl or other things. Um, uh, uh, so, uh, but we do see a greater percentage of people uh, uh, become opioid negative for their drug of choice, uh, whatever they're not, you know, using the stop buprenorphine, um, become opioid negative uh, increasingly over the course of 12 months. Now, Larissa had a question on treatment direction, duration for naltrexone long-acting injection. I'm going to answer that two ways. Um, I'll show you the, the data on treatment retention for buprenorphine. The data on treatment retention for buprenorphine is the longer, the better. The longer you can keep somebody on a medication for addiction treatment, the better they do. That's what the evidence says. Um, and that every study that compares uh, a buprenorphine maintenance paper, uh, paper, sorry, a buprenorphine um, uh, uh, um, a maintenance treatment to a taper condition where somebody's kept on buprenorphine for a period of time and taken off shows this exact same curve, which is maintenance conditions always outcompete taper conditions. Um, and, you know, again, this is uh, kind of every study that's ever done shows that the people who are on maintenance treatments do better than not. Um, so uh, Larissa is going to talk, asked about um, uh, checking LFTs. For buprenorphine, you do not need to check liver function tests because buprenorphine does not cause liver inflammation. Um, I like to check the LFTs in general in my patients roughly annually um, because it gives me a chance to screen for um, any source of hepatitis, whether it's infectious hepatitis or uh, alcohol-related hepatitis, or you know, it, it, it gives me information that I use to take care of patients. But you do not need to check LFTs before starting buprenorphine in a patient. And so um, in Missouri, they actually adopted something called the medication first model. That is, um, because uh, medications like buprenorphine 
uh, are so effective at keeping people alive and engaged in treatment that we should prioritize initiating pharmacotherapy as quickly as possible before we do a comprehensive assessment, before we do a long treatment planning session. That, that is the, the patient's ability to sit down and actually do an adultful assessment and meaningfully participate in a treatment plan is likely to going to be contingent on their receipt of and now exiting from the cycle of intoxication withdrawal, their receipt of buprenorphine. Uh, these are great questions. I'll, 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 I'll get to them. Uh, I'll get to them when I get to them, uh, but a little bit later on in the talk. Um, that we deliver maintenance pharmacotherapy without time limits. That is, it's not like, okay, you get a year of uh, this medication and then, then, you're, then you're supposed to be done. We continue the medication as long as the patient benefits from it, which is what we do in other areas of mental health. If somebody's on a long-acting injectable antipsychotic, we continue it as long as the patient benefits from that antipsychotic. Um, that we continually offer psychosocial services, but we don't require patients to do a psychosocial treatment in order to get medications, and that we only stop uh, medications if it's making the person worse. Um, so if you're interested in reading more about the medication first model, I put a link on the slides, and um, I, I, uh, uh, I think that uh, Jean, who is uh, helping monitor the chat today, um, Jean, if I could use your help in making sure that the handout gets distributed to everybody, that would be uh, very helpful um, to make sure that people can check these links. Um, the medication first model does not mean med only. It means that we continue the medication as long as the patient's benefiting, but we continually offer counseling support, but we don't tie, like, there are so many treatment programs that will say, once you do our full assessment, then we do a treatment plan, then we get you to group, maybe you'll get started on medications. And that's actually the exact wrong order. The right order is start with the medications, get the person engaged in treatment and kept alive so that they can then do a full assessment around their, you know, psychosocial uh, readiness to engage in psychosocial treatment. But I think of um, uh, buprenorphine in particular, but medications for opioid use disorder in general, as should be available in any setting of care, in inpatient, residential, in outpatient, in IMDs, in, uh, you know, street outreach, and, you know, that, that there's no wrong setting to initiate medications for opioid use disorder. And because um, most mental health treatment programs are not opioid treatment licensed opioid treatment facilities, we're left with buprenorphine and with naltrexone. Trexone comes in an oral tablet that's 50 milligrams. Um, the usual lead-in dose is 25 milligrams a day for three days and then 50 milligrams thereafter. The oral version is famously not effective for opioid use disorder. It does not work to help people stop or reduce using their opioids. Um, um, uh, those of you that have used disulfiram for alcohol use disorder will be familiar with that patients stop taking their medication when they're ready to use, and that's true for oral naltrexone. So not only do patients just stop taking their oral naltrexone when they're ready to use, what we also find is that um, it increases the risk that the patient's actually going to overdose if, uh, it, when they stop using because it, it reduces their opiate tolerance. Um, so I don't recommend oral naltrexone for opioid use disorder. It is a perfectly reasonable treatment for alcohol use disorder. And unlike opioids, a patient has to be fully off of opioids to get any naltrexone, oral or injectable. And I say fully off for, about a, for at least a week. Cannot have been on any kind of chronic opioid therapy. Um, but you can give people naltrexone even if they're actively drinking. The patient does not have to have stopped drinking in order to benefit from oral or injectable naltrexone. That is, oral injectable naltrexone do help 
um, patients even if reduce their alcohol use, even if they're actively drinking. So the injectable version is a once a month, 380 milligram dose, and it's a gluteal injection. Uh, again, you have to be off of opioids before you get uh, any naltrexone long-acting injection. So this is a good reason to test the urine to see if there's any opioids present. This is what the blood level looks like of naltrexone long-acting injection. It's pretty high during the first week, which is when people after the first injection get something called the Vivitrol flu. is during that first week, which is these, um, uh, um, what's the right word? Uh, uh, kind of sub-syndromal opiate withdrawal features of like uh, piloerection, um, malaise. Uh, I have patients today that can't sleep well. It's this, um, it's not really opiate withdrawal, but it, it mimics it, even if a person doesn't have an opioid use disorder. And for those that have never used it, this is what the packet for looks like. And for those that have never seen a butt, this is a schematic of what a butt looks like. And uh, the naltrexone long-acting injection goes in the upper outer quadrant. I will get to the question about urine toxicology, and I will get to the question about um, trending LFTs and duration of treatment. But I do have a question. Um, there was a head-to-head -head trial done here in the United States called XBOT that compared naltrexone long-acting injection for opioid use disorder with buprenorphine um, for uh, uh, opioid use disorder. It was not an alcohol use disorder study. It was an opioid use disorder study that looked at injectable naltrexone versus sublingual buprenorphine. Does anyone know which medication out, uh, did better on the outcomes of treatment retention, reduced opioid use, and cravings. Anyone know? So it was buprenorphine sublingual or naltrexone long-acting injection. Um, it was uh, a randomized trial. So there was a group of patients with opioid use disorder. Half the group was randomized to naltrexone, that is, received naltrexone, and the other half of the group was randomized to sublingual buprenorphine. Does anyone know which did better in terms of treatment retention, um, reduced uh, opioid use, and reduced craving? So the answer is it depends on how you analyze the study, which is really the, the correct answer for pretty much every research question, right? Like, it, well, it depends on how you answer, uh, how you assess the study. So if you do what's called an intention to treat analysis, if you take um, the group that was randomized to um, naltrexone, and you compare it with the group that was randomized to buprenorphine, the group that was randomized to naltrexone long-acting injection or Vivitrol um, uh, did worse than the group that was randomized to buprenorphine. And intention to treat simply means um, of the group that was randomized, which group did better? The group that was randomized to, buprenor to buprenorphine did better than the group that was randomized to Vivitrol. But um, if you ask, well, why? Like, so uh, fair enough, that was the outcome. But you know, why did um, buprenorphine seem to do better? It's because the patients that were randomized to naltrexone did not last that seven-day period in order to actually receive the injection. That is, there were a whole number of dropouts in the naltrexone long-acting injection arm of the study that prevented people from actually receiving the treatment, right? So uh, the reason that naltrexone underperformed is because a lot of people never got on it because they couldn't be abstinent from opioids for long enough in order to be able to get onto naltrexone long-acting injection. If you then take the dropouts away, I'm not saying um, uh, uh, you know, do intention to treat, but instead take the dropouts of each arm away and just looked at of the people who got onto Vivitrol versus the people who got onto buprenorphine, which did better. Let me point out, that's no longer a randomized trial. They're no longer technically comparable groups because 
um, the dropouts from the naltrexone long-acting injection arm uh, are different than the people who did or didn't drop out of the buprenorphine arm. They, uh, the people who stayed um, and were able to get onto naltrexone long-acting injection may have had a less severe form of opioid use disorder, may have been more motivated, so they're no longer perfectly matched samples. But, and this is what they published, what they published is that once you initiate a medication, uh, once you initiate naltrexone long-acting injection in a patient with opioid use disorder, it appears to be as comparatively effective as buprenorphine. That is, they were, worked about the same of the people who got onto it. However, um, that once the patient gets onto it is non-trivial. If you're an outpatient mental health practice or like in a, uh, a full-service partnership, good luck getting the patient to abstain for long enough to be able to get enough trexone. You, you, you probably need to admit the patient to a residential program or a sober living or recovery bridge housing where they're not going to use. Or if the patient's incarcerated, that's another opportunity where they might not use opioids, right? But short of that, it's very hard to get a patient to stop using opioids um, uh, without medications like buprenorphine. Whereas buprenorphine, you can initiate um, the next time the patient's in withdrawal, they can take a dose of buprenorphine and they'll no longer be in withdrawal. So um, the XBOT trial showed that um, there are a subset of patients that seem to do well on naltrexone long-acting injection. And um, I no longer think the research question of buprenorphine versus Vivitrol, I, I should say Suboxone versus Vivitrol or buprenorphine versus naltrexone long-acting injection, it's no longer a really meaningful research question. The right research question at this point is for which patients will Vivitrol be better and for which patients is Suboxone going to be better? Um, I'm going to go through this pretty quick. N Narcan or naloxone is not a treatment for opioid or any other substance use disorder. There's a misconception that you have to like be dramatic and stab somebody in the heart, and, and that was epinephrine because Uma Thurman in the in the um, uh, in Pulp Fiction had a cardiac arrhythmia, not an opioid overdose. Um, uh, this is what generic naloxone looks like, and this is uh, a brand named nasal Narcan uh, that uh, is sprayed into the nose. Um, it can be administered either intramuscularly or through the nose, um, and nobody needs to die of an opioid overdose. It's now California law that if, you, uh, uh, if you're a prescriber and you see a patient with an opioid use disorder, you have to offer them a, a Narcan prescription unless they already have Narcan uh, kind of in their supply already. So, um, uh, and, and you can prescribe Narcan to people even if they don't have opioid use disorder. It can be prescribed to, to the friends or family or known associates of people with opioid use disorder. Um, uh, there are McDonald's that are giving out Narcan now. Like it's, you know, uh, there, there's a, a real push to getting Narcan out of the community because nobody needs to die of an opioid overdose. It is a reversible condition. Um, so the, the question from uh, E529559 is, is there any predictor of who can abstain for seven days? Yes, people with a less severe form of opioid use disorder and who are really motivated. And, and that tends to be people who find their way to residential treatment. So, um, so if somebody's in residential treatment, um, then they're going to have an easier time abstaining because they're in a contained facility. Um, if somebody uh, is not using heavily, that's also a decent predictor and high uh, patient motivation. Those are three pretty good predictors of somebody who's going to be able to abstain for long enough to get onto naltrexone. I do want to talk about the evidence for naltrexone. This is Project Combined, which looked at oral naltrexone. And it actually looked at oral naltrexone versus oral acamprosate versus the combination of naltrexone and acamprosate um, versus uh, placebo. 
And then um, half of, of uh, those, those are four arms. Half of those arms got therapy. Half of those arms didn't get therapy, like behavioral therapy. And then um, there was a non-placebo uh, therapy-only arm for, uh, where people did not get any medications at all. And what Project Combined found was that um, uh, the black line is, uh, uh, or the, these lines are what are called survival curves. In order to enroll in the study, you had to have started enrolled in the study without drinking. You had to have stopped drinking. And um, then they looked at who restarted drinking. If you restarted drinking, um, and in this case, it's heavy drinking day. So if you restarted drinking heavily, that is four or more drinks on one occasion, or five or more if you're a man, um, then uh, you, you were sort of dropped off this curve. And you'll see the black line is naltrexone, the dotted line is um, uh, no naltrexone. You'll see that um, in the therapy arm, and the arm, or I'm sorry, in the non-therapy arm, the medication only arm, you'll see that um, uh, people that got naltrexone had fewer heavy drinking days over the course of the study compared to people that did not get naltrexone. So um, in, the, in the study arm, or in the, in the no therapy arm, naltrexone seemed to work uh, as compared to no naltrexone. Um, that difference went away when people got therapy. Here's a different ways of, of, of rendering this data. It's uh, Project Combined showed that compared to like placebo without therapy, that therapy helped significantly reduce drinking behavior, heavy drinking behavior. Naltrexone with therapy also reduced drinking behavior, and naltrexone without therapy also helped reduce drinking behavior. You can prescribe naltrexone to people who are um, uh, uh, without therapy, and it will have an effect on drinking behavior. But if you look, um, uh, in this particular slide, I'm not sure if you can see my cursor, but um, in the, the no um, combined behavioral intervention slide, the differences between these curves are modest. Now, Trexone is a modestly efficacious medication. It has a small difference in drinking behavior. Sure, it's statistically significant, and in fact, it could even be clinically significant if reduced heavy drinking days help somebody you know, keep their liver and not need a liver transplant or keep somebody from driving while intoxicated or keep somebody out of, you know, out of trouble or jail. So reduced drinking behavior is not meaningless, but it's also not the same as like abstinence, right? It doesn't, these, these medications aren't drugs that make you stop drinking altogether. And what about naltrexone long-acting injection? When naltrexone long-acting injection is better adhered to than the oral version, and it also reduces the number of days that people drink, You'll see the difference between naltrexone long-acting injection and placebo, and it reduces heavy drinking days. If you count total number of drinking days um, over the course of uh, uh, three-quarters of, or uh, about two-thirds of the year, you'll see that the people that got naltrexone, which is the dark line here, drank less overall, um, and this is heavy drinking days. So I had fewer heavy drinking days overall compared to a placebo. So these medications work, but they're modestly effective. They don't make people sober, but they help people drink less alcohol. I'm gonna take a couple questions right now. So one question is, uh, so how long do you need to take naltrexone for alcohol use disorder? Um, well, well, let me take a step back. So for opioid use disorder, all the evidence is the same. The longer, the better. The longer you're on the medication, the better. That's true for naltrexone, that's true for buprenorphine. For alcohol use disorder, it's similar. The longer you're on it, the better. But unlike with opioids, the effect from uh, these medications for alcohol use disorder is more modest. And I'll tell you, I don't tell my patients that they have to be on these medications their whole lives. I mean, that may be what the evidence says, but that's not the actual 
message I give to patients. The message I give to patients is, um, this is a medication to help you drink less. I don't want you to take it a day longer than you need it, but we'll figure that out together. And if a patient wants to come off, then we talk about meds plus counseling plus support. And if somebody is doing counseling and getting support, they might be ready to come off medications if they themselves have learned how to navigate the world as a non-drinker. So um, there is no fixed amount of time. You keep patients on these medications as long as they're benefiting from them. Um, it's not a, a matter of, oh, it's been a year, it's time to come off. I will treat people for many years with buprenorphine, with naltrexone, with oral naltrexone, as long as they're reporting that they're benefiting from it. There's no fixed time limit. Um, the other question was about a liver function test. The oral naltrexone um, is associated with liver inflammation, typically at higher than usual prescribed doses, doses like one to 200 milligrams a day. At the 50 milligram a day dose, it's rarely associated with liver inflammation. So I don't check LFTs before starting oral naltrexone. I typically will trend LFTs during the first year, approximately quarterly, but I don't stop oral naltrexone just because I don't have LFTs. For injectable naltrexone, that bypasses the liver in terms of first pass metabolism. And so um, I don't check LFTs for injectable naltrexone unless there's jaundice or a history of hepatitis or unless I have another reason to. But unless somebody's showing obvious signs of liver decompensation, I don't withhold naltrexone long acting injection without LFTs. Just like I don't withhold uh, um, a Depakote just because I don't have baseline LFTs. I'll get the Depakote level and I'll get the LFTs and I'll get the platelet count at the next opportunity, but I don't withhold it. So with naltrexone, you don't have to trend LFTs. Um, at this point, it's still a convention. I still trend them at least once a year and you know, usually uh, within the month after starting naltrexone. Um, but you don't have to, uh, the, the guidance at this point is you don't have to check LFTs unless somebody has some symptom that their liver is not doing well. Uh, another question is, what's my thought on urine testing for illicit substances when prescribing buprenorphine? I like testing, I like urine testing buprenorphine for two reasons. One, it tells me whether they're taking the buprenorphine. So I test my cup has a buprenorphine strip in it so I can see that if I'm prescribing the buprenorphine that they're taking it. And I also test for other substances, um, not because I'm going to stop the buprenorphine. If somebody uses methamphetamine or Xanax or something, you can safely prescribe buprenorphine to people even who use sedatives. Um, uh, but, but rather uh, because it gives me an opportunity to talk to them about their other substance use. So I do recommend urine testing for people that I'm prescribing buprenorphine, but I don't withhold buprenorphine if the patient won't do a urine test unless I'm concerned that they're not taking it or I think that the um, buprenorphine is in some way making them worse. Um, is the question, is Narcan dangerous if taken by somebody who is overdosed on something that's not opioids? No. Uh, Narcan is not dangerous to administer in people. Um, uh, if it's a non-opioid overdose, the Narcan won't have any effect, but it's not dangerous. Um, the question is, now, Trexone appears to work for both alcohol and opioid use disorder. Is there any evidence that buprenorphine is effective for alcohol use disorder? Not really. Uh, buprenorphine does not work for alcohol use disorder. If somebody drinks when they use opioids, and and the buprenorphine helps them come off the opioids, there is um, uh, an effect of buprenorphine in reducing alcohol consumption in people with comorbid alcohol and opioid use disorder. But um, a buprenorphine on its own in somebody that does not have an opioid use disorder does not help with alcohol use disorder. 
And then the question is, somebody has LFTs, would I feel comfortable prescribing Vivitrol? Yes, as long as those LFTs were under five times the upper limit of normal. If they have like super robust hepatitis, um, like actively jaundiced or otherwise, then I'd want to work with the patient to figure out why are, you know, why is their liver so inflamed? Um, lots of people with alcohol use disorder have mildly elevated LFTs, you know, in the low hundreds. I'll give Vivitrol to those patients, no problem. It's people that are in the 200s, 300s, you know, like in, in, the, in the, you know, significantly elevated LFTs. That's the patient that I'm um, going to be a little bit more concerned about. If I still think the LFT increase is due to alcohol, I might still administer Vivitrol, particularly if I'm worried that the patient won't follow up. But if I can get testing and a workup of why their LFTs are elevated first, I'll do that. Um, but uh, typically, uh, in most cases, LFT abnormalities, particularly for alcoholic hepatitis, tend to be low enough that I, um, that I still uh, administer Vivitrol. It's really the five times the upper limit of normal that I begin to pause and think, you know, why are your LFTs so high? Okay, so um, here's a resource on incorporating alcohol therapies. Um, uh, any program that implements these medication therapies has somebody to prescribe them, offers some psychosocial service. The patients don't have to be enrolled in it, but offers some psychosocial service to patients, coordinates care um, for the patient's medical and uh, mental health conditions, and has a provider and community education and outreach component. So it takes more than just somebody to prescribe to do an MAT, or Medications for Opioid or Alcohol Use Disorder Program in mental health settings. You do have to have somebody to prescribe, but you also have to have some plan for offering psychosocial services, coordinating care, and doing uh, provider education and outreach. And just real quick, I'm uh, prescribing you a patch to help you quit smoking. Please wear it over your mouth. The most effective single medication for tobacco use disorder is varenicline, but the combination of nicotine patch plus gum or lozage, um, that combination appears to be most effective. So when, uh, if you're prescribing nicotine replacement therapy, the strong recommendation at this point is to um, prescribe combination patch plus gum or lozage um, or varenicline plus gum or lozage. You don't do the patch plus varenicline, generally speaking. Um, and so here's the, the quick medication strategy that we've uh, developed within the Department of Health Services here in LA County, which is you match the strength of the patch to match the um, number of cigarettes the person typically smokes a day. So the patches comes in sevens, 14s, 21s, and 28s. So if somebody's smoking a quarter pack a day, they get the seven milligram patch. A half pack a day, which is 10 cigarettes, they get a 14 milligram patch. A one pack a day is a 21 milligram patch. And then you kind of go up in the strength of the patch depending on how much somebody smokes. Um, uh, these are in the slides that you can you know, feel free to refer to. I do want to highlight that there are a bunch of psychotherapies that are validated to help people with substance use disorders. But there was a study that was done that looked at um, people that got methadone or buprenorphine, and then uh, looked at studies where people got behavioral therapy in combination with, uh, with, uh, with methadone or buprenorphine, compared to methadone or buprenorphine uh, without behavioral treatments. And the really surprising finding was actually that adding psychosocial support did not seem to make a difference. So I am reassured that if a patient is ready to start methadone or buprenorphine, or even naltrexone, um, but the methadone or buprenorphine you can start uh, as soon as the patient can accept the referral to the OTP or accept the dose of buprenorphine. Um, I recommend starting those medications as soon as feasible um, because I, uh, their effectiveness does not rely on the patient participating in a behavioral treatment. 
So um, one common question that I'm asked all the time is, which of these things are billable in specialty mental health? And I'll say, okay, specialty mental health does not pay for addiction treatment, but it will pay for um, uh, medically necessary services to address substance use that is impacting the person's primary mental health condition. So in any note that I write at DMH, the primary condition is schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, uh, major depressive disorder. It's the, it's the mental health condition that's in the patient's chart. It's never alcohol use disorder or opioid use disorder, right? So I'm always documenting my interventions other, under the mental health condition. And, the, and the, the treatment plan reads something like this. I am treating this patient with a medication for alcohol or opioid use disorder in order to um, relieve uh, the symptoms that are impacting the patient's major depressive disorder, uh, bipolar disorder, whatever their primary mental health condition is. And that, um, my understanding, is legitimate from a state reviewer standpoint in terms of a, a reasonable use and documenting um, integrated co-occurring disorder treatment within specialty mental health. And we actually um, developed uh, a whole program for this, uh, and this was a, a project we did at the Rand Corporation. Um, ordinarily, the, uh, this next set of slides would be like a 45-minute talk, but uh, we'll go through it in five minutes. Um, uh, uh, worked as part of a team that, uh, from the Rand Corporation that actually went in and uh, uh, met with the um, staff and leadership of eight different Department of Mental Health clinics, and we're in the process of building a toolkit that the clinics can use to implement medications for alcohol use disorder and opioid use disorder in their settings. Um, so eight clinics across uh, DMH, um, we looked at both uh, what are the clinics currently offering in terms of medications for alcohol or opioid use disorder and, um, and what's the demand. So we interviewed uh, clients as well. So understanding the supply, when we asked what are the biggest barriers to providing integrated co-occurring alcohol use disorder treatment? People would say, alcohol use disorder treatment is not on my job description. Um, there's no easy way to communicate clinical information about specific patients. Clients are not motivated to address alcohol use disorder. Um, many people are really unfamiliar with these medications for alcohol or opioid use disorder. Um, uh, we, when we asked the staff, the staff said, um, that uh, we, we, we feel prepared to ask people about alcohol use, but we think that the medication should be prescribed somewhere else. Um, many patients don't go anywhere else, but there was this idea that, that, that there's a somewhere else where the patient needs to go to get medications for alcohol use disorder. Um, and uh, there was just in general, um, people, uh, uh, a lack of training and familiarity and a real question around like, so what's our documentation requirements? How do we actually do this? Um, and understanding demand, you know, uh, we uh, recruited clients and um, conducted focus groups. Uh, uh, we uh, interviewed 87 total DMH clients. And most clients viewed drinking as a problem related to, as a problem of what's called internal locus of control. You know, I don't care what kind of pills you uh, make. If you don't deal with the issue that's making you drink, that's useless. You know, I'm an alcoholic and um, uh, I'm not, you know, medications won't be effective. So. Um, most, there were a lot of people said, you know, if you want to change your drinking, it's something you have to choose. It's not something that a medication can help you with. The views of the costs um, and benefits, and I have to, this is slide credit all to, to Dr. Bromley, who actually published this paper, so I put the, the link to the paper here, um, is that there, there was a real aversion that I don't want to become dependent on a pill, right? The, the benefit of this pill is reduced if it's going to um, 
uh, uh, erode my agency or my ability to decide around drinking. Whereas, um, uh, you know, if people looked at the medication as a tool, this will help you choose to stop drinking, you know, when you're ready to, that appeared to be a more effective message. That is the perception of, of medications for alcohol use disorder as a tool to help people control their drinking was more effective than a tool to make you stop drinking. And uh, uh, people acknowledged that, um, you know, drinking can be a problem and that there was susceptibility to relapse, but this did not seem to matter. Um, people who even had severe alcohol use disorder said, I relapse all the time, I do. You know, I, I don't uh, think that it, uh, a pill is going to help with that. And cues to action and context are important drivers of demand. So, um, uh, you know, um, people felt like, uh, you know, um, seeing how people used a pill, um, a cue to action and contextual factors would have been really important. So when medications are seen as uh, supporting internal locus of control, demand increases. When medications are seen as undermining internal locus of control, demand declines. Um, the contextual factors and cues to action really does um, shape whether somebody will accept uh, medication for alcohol use disorder or not. And most people um, were not familiar with the medications for alcohol use disorder. And were um, uh, and people who tried it before were the people most convinced that it could be helpful. So framing medications for alcohol use disorder as a tool to build self-control is probably going to be the most effective strategy. We did an anonymous survey in the waiting rooms at DMH to... Uh, assess how many people had problem opioid use. And so we administered a little over 3,000 surveys, and there were uh, about 12% of them indicated uh, prescription and or heroin narcotic problems. Um, and most of those were for prescription opioids not involving heroin. So uh, there are a significant population of patients, over 10% of patients at DMH that have opioid use disorder, and it's mostly narcotic medications and not heroin. Of the 363 with problem opioid use, most had chronic pain, right? Um, uh, 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 so people had overtaken or had problems with their narcotic pain medications that also had chronic pain. So the implications for practice disorder, um, we should assess pain in people that use opioids, and we should offer medications for opioid use disorder in DMH settings. Treating alcohol or opioid or meth use disorder, I, I, I uh, use a similar approach that I use for cigarettes which is I talk to people about the risks and benefits of, of smoking. I use motivational interviewing and I do counseling. Um, essentially counseling support is how I address uh, 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 cannabis use. So what's in the toolkit? Well, the toolkit has a whole options. Um, I'll uh, be happy to once it's published, distributed among this group. Um, but the most important step of the toolkit is building a shared vision for the clinic and then um, adapting workflow and guidelines. So here's a, an alcohol use disorder process map. Um, it made some people's bleed because it looked like it had so many steps. The truth is there's not actually a terrible number of steps involved with doing alcohol use disorder pharmacotherapy, but it is important to think through everybody at the clinic has a role. Like alcohol use disorder treatment is not an SUD counselor's responsibility. It's a front desk staff responsibility. It's the triage clinician. It's the primary clinician. It's um, the psychiatrist or the NP, right? It's everybody has a role to play. And then here's the quick process map that we'd initially developed for co-occurring co alcohol use disorder treatment. And DMH's current associate medical director for co-occurring disorder and homeless services said that's too complicated. Here's the better workflow. They just uh, kind of simplified things a bit. Um, 
but uh, the bottom line is if you look at the bottom, you'll see that um, there's the assigned clinician, the SUD counselor, there's nurses, um, there's uh, 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 peers and families, there's the psychiatrist or nurse practitioner, everybody has a potential role to play in alcohol use disorder treatment. And now the last set of slides is, you know, let's say you did uh, in the toolkit, let's say you did a, a medication program for alcohol or opioid use disorder. Um, well, you can look at how many did you screen. And the screening rates for our, uh, alcohol use disorder and DMH are pretty good. Of the people who um, uh, drink hazardously, how many people did you deliver a brief intervention to, which is targeted advice? And, you know, this varied from clinic to clinic, but roughly half, right? A little bit less of uh, clinics were delivering brief interventions from people with hazardous alcohol use. How many people um, uh, initiated treatment within 14 days of that screening? Uh, it depends on the clinic. This had some variability. And who engaged in treatment with, uh, with uh, engaged in any treatment within 34 days of initiating treatment, but the second visit within a 34-day period of initiating the diagnosis? Again, there was some variability. But how many clients took um, uh, were prescribed a medication for alcohol use disorder? It was pretty low. It was 10 or, you know, overall in the clinics, it was 5%. There was one clinic that was 10%. So um, pretty low rates of treatment of co-occurring alcohol use disorder, even in people who, with, um, uh, uh, who would benefit from it. If somebody has chronic pain or OUD, how would I help them uh, on BUP and getting off of opioids? Yes, you would need to work with pain management, but the short answer is you would tell the patient to stop taking their opioids and when they got sick next to put BUP under their tongue. Is the, that's, the, that's the technical part of how you do it. Um, but you, you, know, you, would, you would, of course, need to coordinate with their treatment team wherever they're getting their narcotic opioids from. If they're in a pain management clinic, it would require some real coordination, certainly. And um, buprenorphine can also be used to help with chronic pain. You have to dose it more frequently, typically three times a day. Um, uh, but I would rather a patient be on buprenorphine for their chronic uh, pain than a... Um, uh, how do I put this? If somebody's having problems with their opioids, I would rather them be on buprenorphine for their chronic pain than on the opioids that they're having problem with because buprenorphine is so much safer. Um, so most patients, 13% of Medi-Cal beneficiaries have a substance use disorder. That works out to about 400,000 patients uh, in LA County, but there's what, 40 or so thousand patients actually make it into specialty addiction treatment. Um, there is a phone number that you can call to refer a patient to specialty addiction treatment, but I just wanna highlight that you know, we're looking at roughly one in 10 patients that has a substance use disorder actually makes it into treatment. So this idea that addiction is gonna be treated somewhere else is typically a fallacy. That if you say we're not gonna treat the addiction um, as part of mental health, means that the patient's probably not ever gonna get their addiction treatment, right? Because when you refer a patient, it just, it, uh, the patient rarely connects. So Mr. Brown, he's 34 years old. Um, uh, those of you that said naltrexone plus, a camp, uh, plus nicotine replacement therapy were exactly right. Um, nicotine replacement therapy, is uh, uh, um, smoking is the biggest killer. Uh, it's the thing that causes heart disease and strokes and uh, heart attacks and, and cancers and, and the biggest cause of death in people experiencing homelessness. So I would still say NRT is probably the top one, but naltrexone, because you can absolutely use them both together, is also correct because alcohol use disorder is also associated with morbidity and mortality. Okay, we have one minute left. Um, this is uh, my email address. And there's uh, the upcoming integrated uh, care conference, which is going to be virtual. Uh, the CSAM meeting is going to be virtual this year. The American Academy of Addiction Psychiatry meeting is going to be virtual this year. So um, although this conference was virtual this year, I hope to see you at many of these conferences. Thank you so much for your time and attention this afternoon.